You are this country's first openly gay prime minister. How big a deal is this for you personally? Brexit price. U.S. investment bank Lehman Brothers collapsed. I said this was a once in a generation a vote. financial crisis. But I believe we have voted today for the next generation. Don't be rude. Ireland has spoken with a clear, strong voice. I think I should stop now and start again, because I don't think you this is a good news. start of the debate. Welcome to the Dublin Law and Politics Review Podcast, in which we discuss current political events. My name is Ramesh Ganaharati, and today with me is Sasha Durkop, with whom I will discuss the intersection of sports and stay tuned. If you like this podcast, don't forget to subscribe and follow us on social media via at Dublin LPR. So, Sasha, welcome to the podcast. Hello, and thank you for having me. So, I know you've been an advocate for the right to play football for all people from all territories, but unfortunately, many have been excluded to play football internationally, including within FIFA. Could you maybe share how you ended up working in this area to begin with? What's your story? Sure. I ended up working in that area by complete coincidence. So I'm a mathematician originally, and while doing my master's thesis, I started to collect national team football shirts just out of interest of all the FIFA members. And at some point during that research, found out that there are more teams that aren't in FIFA and, and don't have a place in the usual international sports governance. So I spoke to a couple of them and found their cause very worthwhile and helped them networking with each other, which eventually led to me becoming one of the co-founders of CUNIFA, an organization that is kind of the governing body of these national teams. So how many teams are there that are not in FIFA? Is there, can we give a number? Uh, it's very hard to tell. I think in, in total about 800 such teams have played at some point in history. Currently active are around 50 of such teams. But the number really is endless. Like every territory of Spain is having their own national team. So the best country or Catalonia, but also the smaller ones like the Baleares, for example. So that, that's 30 or so alone. And you can do the same with Russia and their federal subject, and then you end up having a really blown up number with hundreds of teams, really. Okay. So then why is sports or sports diplomacy important for these territories? Why are they envisaging to play sports or play football? Well, for, for many of them, it is a form to, to express themselves and to put themselves really on a map, which they are usually not. So many of them are virtually unknown, even those in, in Europe. A good example from the UK, for example, is Yorkshire, who do have a team. They don't have a political aim behind having the team. They just want to, to represent their region and their own culture, which is distinct to general British culture in a way. And that alone is completely unknown to most of the world. So I'm as a I'm a German, and I had no idea that Yorkshire is any different to, to London or Manchester. So the football team and the whole framework of, of having a chance to to group and speak about themselves is, is kind of a way to, to broadcast that and, and tell the world that they exist as a distinct 
entity in a way, not necessarily in a, in a political way. And for others, especially the de facto states, which I'm sure we will speak about, for them it is yeah, kind of a way to, to be a state. While they are not allowed to be that in a political sphere, they do have the chance to put together their own national team in sports and football in, in particular. Mm -hmm. So what I hear back from your answer is it's a lot to do with identity of a particular peoples or region. And however, I can see how it can be construed by critiques, especially in relation to de facto states, that by these territories being able to play football and have their name on a banner internationally to be able to wave their flags they are making a political statement and thus engaging in this whole separatism narrative. And then, again, critics might say this is not correct and they should not be doing that. Only, again, going to the traditional narrative of only states should represent themselves internationally and the like. How do you respond to these kind of criticisms there? First of all, I think it is a valid point and it is exactly what that kind of football wants to achieve. So if a, the existence of a Tibet national team triggers a debate whether Tibet should have a national team, then they already won because they have raised their awareness, they have raised the debate that they feel is too often forgotten. So that's already all they want to achieve, really, by having that team. And then I think there are two factors. So one factor is that they are currently excluded from participating in international exchange through sports, which I think is, is wrong. So a Tibetan would never get access to the Chinese national football team or start at the Olympics for China. So they are actively excluded by discrimination from international sport. And what this kind of football is doing is giving them or including them in that international sports sphere then. And the argument about sporting separatism then is kind of mixing up the existence of the team and the political statement behind an entity that carries the same name, which is something that we never do within recognized sports. So nobody would argue that North Korea shouldn't have a national football team because the state is entirely wrong and is unjust and it's just a horrible dictatorship. Nobody would argue that or criticize that. And we do have the same with separatism as well. I mean, Palestine does have a national team. Kosovo does have a national team. All within FIFA, a lot of colonies like Gibraltar have a national team. And nobody would argue they shouldn't because it's a strong political statement for some political claim. So I think, yes, the argument is a valid one and it's one to be had, but it should be had within FIFA or within the international sports scene in general and not just for, for that scene. I think it's not worse of, of a political statement than it is to exclude them. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what I see then... What happens is that really politicians just pick and choose their arguments. And it's just a convenient argument to sometimes just put the label of separatism and then to advocate their position, which is, as you said, maybe a very valid one. 
But again, it is discriminatory in nature because we only then use that argument for a certain number or type of territories or regions, while not others. So there's this kind of discrepancy and double standards on how we discuss certain regions and how they participate in international sports. I think in, in many ways, it's also just convenience. I mean, again, looking at Tibet as an example, there are basically two options, either having a Tibet national team, which is what, what I've done in the past and worked with, or forcing the Chinese Football Association to stop discrimination against Tibetans and other sports governing bodies. But that would mean that FIFA would have to take a very strong position against Chinese football, which again is completely linked to the Chinese state, and it's something they can just economically not do. It would hurt them too much. I mean, every football shirt worn at the FIFA World Cup, every ball is produced in China. All these companies have strong links with China, and they just can't take chances, so they don't. So it's just convenient to to ignore it and maybe send a letter to China every two or three years saying, please include everyone in your actions, but not actually force it and, and sanction China if they don't, for example. So I think that that's a very strong point why they are doing that. And at the same time, FIFA is a, is a very good example because they never fought against what we are doing. In, in fact, they protected it. So when China complained about it, FIFA would always respond, look, we are not doing this actively but will not prevent it either. So in, in a way, they accept it and they protect it indirectly. So what, what you're referring to is, just to clarify to our listeners, is that when the Tibetan team, national team, played in Kanifa, there was criticism from the Chinese government and then the Chinese government complained to FIFA, but then FIFA had responded saying, well, this is outside our purview. So that's, that's what you mean, right? Exactly. And I mean, technically, that is true. But as the world in in football is all governed by FIFA, we couldn't rent a football pitch anywhere on the world if FIFA would want to kind of forbid that. So obviously, they could, but they didn't. Okay. Okay, that makes sense. So kind of this leads to my next question is that, and this is something the both of us actually have worked on, is that looking at the intersection between sports sovereignty, so an entity that can play and engage in international sports, and the political sovereignty, so as a political entity. And in FIFA, we see naturally teams from countries like Germany, the US, Russia, but also from places like Kosovo, Taiwan, which are, some would argue, are de facto states or unrecognized states, however you label them, but also territories like Guam and Puerto Rico. On the other hand, we also see that footballers from states, UN members like Nauru, Pulau, not in FIFA, and neither are de facto states like Abkhazia or South Ossetia. So why is there a discrepancy with this? Why don't political and sports sovereignty align? Yeah, I think that the very first learning from that paper is that it 
doesn't make any political sense and it seems to be very arbitrary. I, I think one good example I would love to highlight is, for example, Jersey, the, the British Crown Dependency, has the highest degree within the, uh, of autonomy within the United Kingdom and has actively tried to join FIFA for the last 20 years or so and have always been rejected. Still, England, but also places like Gibraltar or Bermuda, who have a lower degree of autonomy, they are all in FIFA. So there seems to be no rule of thumb how you can join them or who can join them. And I think one of the main reasons for that is timelines and changing political perceptions of FIFA itself. Historically, they have been very open to colonies always arguing that they will probably be independent soon in, in the whole context of decolonization. But that has changed. So all the dependent territories we see now are being kept out by the same argument, basically saying they are not on the way to independence. So we shouldn't let them in anymore. And the same happens with the de facto states. They have been very welcome in the past. There was a, a huge debate about Taiwan and China maybe 30, 40 years ago, and they've always tried to find a way to include both, but that has changed. So today they, they take a very strong opinion on who can join them and who not, and a very one-sided position usually. So for me, it's still, after researching this for months, it still doesn't entirely make sense how they are acting in each case. It still seems arbitrary, and... I think why we have worked on that is mostly to again trigger that debate. I mean, shouldn't there be a universal rule like all UN members can join and that's it? Then you have a clear-cut role linking political sovereignty to sports sovereignty. But why should you do that more fuzzy than that? Also, another example is, for example, the case of the Faroe Islands and Greenland. Where in one case, correct me if I'm wrong, the Faroe Islands is part of FIFA and then Greenland is not, even though they are both dependencies of Denmark, they have the same political status. But then again, in terms of sports, one is allowed in and one is not allowed. And one reason for Greenland not being in and also some of the Pacific Islands is that they don't have the actual resources or they did not have the resources to actually host FIFA uh, competitions on them. So that's probably another reason why some regions or states are not able to enter into FIFA because of practicalities of where they are and what resources they have. Yeah, Greenland is a very exciting uh, case, and, and you're absolutely spot on. They are out and the Faroe Islands are in although having a similar population and exactly the same political status. And the interesting thing about Gibraltar is that they are trying to get into FIFA for over 30 years now. You mean Greenland, and in the beginning, right? Yes, you said Gibraltar, Greenland. Uh, sorry, yes. Greenland. And in the beginning, they have been excluded by FIFA with the argument being that they don't have a natural grass stadium which was a requirement at the time, simply because it doesn't grow on Greenland. So they were kind of discriminated for climate reasons. And that has changed. So today it is perfectly fine to have artificial grass only. 
and they have that of the highest standard, but are now not let in because FIFA has changed its rules and doesn't allow dependent territories in anymore. So it kind of highlights very well how these rules change and how they were just a little bit too late and kind of a victim to circumstances. Okay, so just kind of to wrap up this part of the discussion, it again, it's very fuzzy, it's still unclear based on what we kind of looked in, in our paper, is firstly, it's that it seems to be arbitrary, but also at the same time, who is in and who is out is time and space dependent. So at what in what period of time, so whether a FIFA ruling was amended or not, and then how that affects, but also geographically and politically where that territory is and how contested that territory is. So that's another reason. And of course, another one is simple resources that a particular territory has and and not meeting the criteria based on that simply because it may not be able to host a FIFA event. So anything else to add to those kind of what I just uh, recapped? Yes, I would like to add that this is not a football problem. Um, so you find the same fuzziness in the Olympic Committee. Um, you find the same in every other sports I'm aware of. So I've also done a, a meta study where I've looked into all the different um, sports governing bodies which are recognized. And you will find exactly the same issues with all of them and exactly the same arguments. And they, again, are not consistent to each other as well. Jersey or Greenland are a member in table tennis, for example. So there is no consistency in in that way, too. Okay. And if any of our uh, listeners want to further explore this whole fascinating topic of how territories, regions which are not in FIFA engage in international sports, the intersection of sports and politics. Any recommendations for what can they do to learn more? Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I mean, Wikipedia is having a very good rundown of football outside FIFA. There, There is a page on that, which I think lists about 150 of these teams and about 100 different tournaments that existed over the time. And I think it's always worth digging a bit into it. It's a bit of a rabbit hole. Once you start, you will want to learn more about all these territories that most of us have never heard before. And what they can actually do to to work on that or advocate on it, I think, is is looking into regulations and how things came about in, in the past and are today. So there is a historical factor where many of these debates were had in the context of decolonization. And then there is kind of a trend to not let in anyone additionally lately and the rise of teams outside of FIFA at the same time. So look into it. There are tons of, of videos of these teams. There are hundreds of interviews with the people actually involved in it, also arguing why they feel it is discriminating against them. And if you have a chance, just try to follow one team or two in, in football or any other sports and try to get an 
idea of what it means to be a footballer on the Isle of Man and not in London. Mm -hmm. um, just that difference is mind-boggling. And also, there are, in addition to that, there also have been a number of books written in the last few years on by journalists who've actually traveled to these places or taken part in different competitions. So, I mean, a simple Googling, you could really find a lot of resources in relation to that. And you're absolutely right in terms of the personal stories of people. It's all about the people and their right to play football and their right to participate and be treated just like any other human being who has or, sh or who should have the equal chance to play football. And I think that's also an important part to look into as well when looking at all this topic as well. Exactly. And as you speak about books, I would love to recommend a book from Joshua Keating. It's called Invisible Nations, which is kind of looking into football, but it's more a political analysis in general. And he's asking the very thought-provoking questions, why we are not questioning borders anymore, and why we are not having more on new states anymore, and why the international political sphere is so strictly against new nations coming along, while this was perfectly normal throughout human history. So I can really recommend that book, and it is looking at football at one of the many aspects um, of that, and one of the many aspects of non-state representation, if you want, but is more of a political analysis in a, in a brighter scope. I would thus like to end our podcast on that note, and I would like to thank Sasha for taking his time to share his experiences with us. And to our listeners, thank you for joining in. And if you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to subscribe or find us on social media via Dublin at LPR or on our website at dublinlpr.ie. This podcast will also be aired on Swatch Radio Navi Mumbai and Galway's Flirt FM. Comments, questions and suggestions are very welcome via contact at Dublin LPR. This was Ramesh Ganaharati and I wish you a pleasant day. Thank you.